This is the quick outline of the book, which is just, first of all, Paul basically defends his apostleship for two whole chapters. And then for two chapters, he teaches us about how we're saved, about justification. And then he teaches us for two chapters about how we live, which is sanctification. So that it's pretty, pretty easy. You know, apart from 2 Corinthians, which has the outline past, present, future, this is a pretty simple outline of a book also. You know, except for the books that have no outline at all. You know, this is, this is pretty simple. If I wanted to get down into the nitty-gritty of chapter 1, which I'm not really going to do, I would talk about the introduction and the authentication, authentication of the apostle of liberty and faith and so forth. But... Um, well, by pointing out that faith itself, the, the Bible tells us, is a gift. So faith is given to us. And you either reject it or not. You know, um, in that way, it's a little bit like a birthday present. You know, either I say thank you or I just say, oh, no, get that away from me. You know, that's, 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 that's the, the reception of, of it. But... Uh, Faith is not a matter of what we're doing, but rather of, of receiving what God has done for us. That's what it is. But faith as a work in itself is, um, I know that there are other arguments about that in other passages, but I'm going to leave my answer right there for the moment. Is that okay? Yep. Okay. And it, that may actually come up a little bit more in chapters 2 and 3. That's also why I want to let that kind of roll down the, the road just a little bit. Um, and get into this. Okay. Chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And before I say anything else, just notice that in the first verse of the book, Paul gets to the resurrection already. Um, when I was a younger man, a uh, younger pastor. I was often uncomfortable talking to people about the resurrection. You know, they're going to laugh at me and so forth. And uh, since that time, from talking to many people about, about their faith and so forth, I've realized you can't get to the resurrection fast enough with people because that's ultimately what they want to know. It really comes down to, am I going to live again after I die? And what do you guys say about it? And you can spend years talking to somebody and never get to that. So why not do what Paul does and just do it in the opening sentence? I went to, uh, excuse me, I went to our Wednesday school class last week. So we have, um, besides having Sunday school, we duplicate it on Wednesdays. For whatever kids can't get to Sunday school, they just come on Wednesdays. And a lot of our public school families do it because they're going to end up going to catechism at the same time in 7th and 8th grade, so it's convenient for them for, you know, drop one group of kids off and so forth. Well, I went to the uh, upper half of the of uh, Wednesday school, which is 4th, 5th, 6th, I think. That's the, I think that's the age group. And there were some 6th grade kids there as well as, you know, a little bit younger. And I just stopped in to say, hi, I'm Pastor Smith. I said, every once in a while, I stop in and just let you guys ask me anything you want to. You know, and, and Mr. Kushel's the teacher, and he can answer anything, but I just do it so they can ask a pastor if they want to. And one of them asked me, 
about uh, death. And I'm talking about it, and I just casually mention, you know, that we rise from the dead. And three of the kids looked at me like, what? Like they'd never heard this before. And it made me realize, oh, yeah, if, you know, many families who, you know, uh, uh, I realize they struggle with work hours and with, and there, may, there might be a divorce and so forth, but their kids aren't getting to church. Their kids are getting to Sunday school or Wednesday school, but not necessarily getting to church, which means are they hearing the resurrection? And they're, they're not, you know, which is why it's important that we remember that the church is here to assist families in spiritually raising our kids, not to take over. Um, but I got to spend, you know, like 10 minutes in that class talking about the resurrection, why it's different from the world's idea, kind of re-energizing now, partly because of anime, about reincarnation. You know, there's a lot of that going around, and some of the kids were asking that, and one kid said, oh, yeah, because when you rise again, you're, you become a, a, a little baby in another mother's womb, and then you, but you might be an animal. And I'm realizing, oh, he's talking about reincarnation. I'm like, no, reincarnation is not what the Bible teaches, and it's not what we believe. And he, he just looked like I hit him in the face. But I had to stop him and talk about what the Bible says. And, and um, so getting right to the truth of the resurrection. Um, and Paul mentions it in, in, uh, at the end of 1 Corinthians when he's talking about the witnesses of the resurrection of Christ. You know, how many people saw him? Well, at one point, 500 people saw him at once that he talks about. And Paul says that so that the people who are reading the, 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 the book of Romans can say, I'm, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians can say, oh, Paul says a couple of them had died, but most of them are still around. I can go and ask any of them, and their account will be the same as the one Paul just gave me. Um, so we get to the resurrection as soon as we can. But he also is focusing here in this verse on being an apostle. And so why does he spend so much ink on the fact of his call? Because he needs to establish himself as an apostle. So just briefly on the call itself. The divine call is to preside over the worship of the congregation, to preach and to teach, and especially to administer the means of grace which are the gospel in word and sacrament. So baptize, give the Lord's Supper, preach, teach adults and children both, and then preside over worship as well. That's, that's primarily the work of a minister of the gospel. The world doesn't understand this at all because the world and many Christian groups think that ministers should be doing, doing social work. You know, that most of what a minister should do is only in the area here over teaching. Like just basically counseling people and doing social work. And, and um, you know, well, how come you can't just give me a ride to the food shelf, you know, every single week? And for some people, we end up doing that. You know, but you're doing that so you have an opportunity to share the gospel as well. Um, Luther said this about the call. The call is not to be taken lightly. For a person to process knowledge is not enough. He must be sure that he is properly called. Those who operate without a call, a proper call, seek no good purpose. God does not bless their labors. They may be good preachers, but they do not edify. Many of the fanatics of our day 
pronounce words of faith, but they bear no good fruit because their purpose is to turn men to their perverse opinions. So why am I doing this? Is it to build myself up? Is it to gain followers? You remember David Koresh and, and that kind of stuff in the 90s? That was I was in the seminary when that happened, and it was horrifying. But we talked about it. We actually came down um, from lunch to the one TV in the seminary um, in, the, in those days um, to watch it, to watch the when the fire started. And, and we talked about it for weeks afterwards in class. You know, it's a prime example of a false teacher. Going back to, uh, again, the, 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 the resurrection. And he says, and all the brothers and sisters with me. So Paul is saying that there are other people writing to you in particular. Um, to the churches in Galatia. And he just said the churches in Galatia kind of quickly. In other letters, he'll spend sometimes half of a chapter talking about who the recipients are. You know, here he hardly even spends any time at all. Like, let's just get to the point here. And he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So, um, the atoning sacrifice of Christ for our sins, um, the rescue from the present evil age. Paul is reminding us that there's sin all around us. That and, and if you're living in it, you know, it's a little bit like if you're going to work in a muddy field, you're going to get muddy clothes, right? It's just going to splash up on you sometimes. And there are going to be times where the sins of the world are going to just get into your life. It's just the way that it is. Um, but we live here as God's servants and tools to work with people while we're here. Okay. Now he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And here, um, this picture of a guy about to fall off a cliff is the moment Paul has in his head for the rest of the letter. This is where the Galatians are for the whole letter. They're about to fall. They haven't fallen, but they're in danger of falling right now. So Paul is the guy holding out his hand to grab them and bring them back. But, you know, he, it's got to be done. So he's reaching out to them. But this, this different gospel, this alos, this, it, it's the Greek word for other. It's this other. Um, when the, uh, in the early days of, 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 of paleontology, when people in England were beginning to see dinosaur bones in the, in the edge of the cliff as they were um, digging new fields and things, they found uh, this different lizard. They didn't know what to call it, and they called it the Allosaurus, the, the other lizard. That's, that's where the, it's similar to a T-Rex, but that's where it got its name, from Allos, which means other. So this is the other, the different gospel. Um, and Paul says, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into a confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And the idea of perverting, twisting, remember my throat, twisting 
the gospel of Christ into something else is this word in Greek, metastrepsi. To, to twist it, to turn around, to turn something into something that it's not. It's not supposed to be used for that. You know, um, so you take your grandmother's best doily. Is that what you're going to use in the garage to clean up the oil? You know, that's that's it's 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 not what it's supposed to be for. It's supposed to be used for something entirely different. Most guys would say, "Well, who would care?" But it's different. You get it, okay? It it goes back to that idea of passive versus active righteousness. If I don't know about passive righteousness, if I don't know that salvation comes from God, then what do I do with the rest of the Bible? Okay. That's that, but that's that's and that's it. It's, it, it's like exactly it, right. Like their Bibles are any different, or say any no, it's the same Bible. So yeah. No, actually, the additional books are good reading. I would rather you read the Apocrypha than a thousand romance novels. You know, the Apocrypha, that, that, boy, you've got Ecclesiastic as 52 chapters of good advice. You know, the Wisdom of Solomon, which is whatever it is, 13 chapters of pretty good, actually written, probably written by a Christian, good advice. First and Second Maccabees explaining how a bunch of stuff happened, including Hanukkah, which is mentioned in John chapter 10, and where the Pharisees and Sadducees came from. So the Apocrypha, and, and then you've got Tobit, which is kind of weird because of a magic formula and an angel that tells him to lie and stuff like that. But, but, it's, but it's just, and some of it's just kind of goofy. And then the, the world's first detective story, which is Susanna. And the world's second detective story, which is Bell and the Dragon. So detective fiction got its source in the two shortest books of the Apocrypha. So these are, these are fine books written for edification. I quote them all the time because they help us to understand um, what some of the words of Scripture mean because then it gets used in a different context. It's no longer poetry, but now it's in the context, oh, this guy, this one battle, and now I get what it means. So yeah, the Apocrypha, they don't change any doctrine. Well, there's one doctrine that gets muddled because of the Apocrypha. I'll, 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 I'll leave that sit for a second. But most of the Apocrypha is fine reading, and, and, and I'd rather you read that than TV Guide, you know, honestly. Um, but uh, but the, the, when the, the Scripture is the same. But if you don't understand where, where righteousness comes from, which is what Galatians is all about, then a lot of scripture is just darkened to your mind and you don't know what to think of it. And that was part of Luther's problem when he was still a Catholic monk. He was just terrified all the time. He'd sit in confession for hours and then come out and then scratch his head and go back in and the priest would go, oh, you're kidding me. Um, and, uh, and go and confess more because he'd say, oh, and when I was confessing to you, I forgot about this and that, and I was thinking about this, and my mind wandered, and the priest would be going, yeah, my mind wandered too. And, uh, and finally, do you know what that priest finally did? He gave Luther a job that made him too tired to keep confessing his sins all the time. He made him a professor of theology and said, if I make you teach, then you're going to have to answer these questions yourself. And he made him go and teach Romans. And it worked. But then Luther became a Lutheran, 
you know, basically doing that. And, and also because they have three other sources of authority besides the Bible. And the Bible is last with a Roman Catholic because first comes the Pope and what he says. For example, in the 1860s, that's how new this is. In the 1860s, the Pope said that Mary is divine as the mediator. They call her the mediatrix. So they should pray to Mary. It began this cult of Mary. Um, um, so then beneath the Pope is our, our church councils. That is doctrinal statements made by church councils. We're not talking about the Apostles' Creed, but which, which we you know, believe and trust and proclaim because it's a faithful representation of what God's word says. But the councils will say, well, this and this are for example, uh, lawful, but this isn't. And all and really meddling in people's lives in a, in a very intimate way. And then the third source is tradition. And if people were doing it for a long time, the Catholic Church would say, then that should stand as, as and now guess what comes forth? The Bible. So tradition even beats the Bible. So you can imagine some... Uh, honestly, illiterate priest or monk and some God-fearing Christian comes to them and says, my, uh, my dad just died and I don't think he really died as a believer, but he was baptized. And the illiterate monk who doesn't know the Bible either would tell the guy, oh, you know what? Um, he's going to be able to work that off before he might have to go to hell. And so he'll purge himself of those sins. And all of a sudden you have the doctrine of purgatory from one illiterate to another based on nothing. Um, and then there are one or two passages that are used to support that, like where Jesus says, you're going to get thrown into prison until you've paid the last penny. Well, that's not what that passage is talking about, but that's their proof passage now from what this one illiterate said to another illiterate in a moment of great pain and very, very emotional moment. And working with doctrine with people who have just lost a loved one is incredibly dangerous and a very difficult thing to do. Um, it's my least favorite time to start talking about church fellowship is when, you know, your mother just died and now I got to tell you that no, your aunt can't come and do the eulogy, you know, because we have fellowship rules and so forth, and that my call is on the line over this. But it's, and by the way, that's always when fellowship comes up. It's either right before a wedding, and usually the couple waits until the day of the wedding to spring this on me because it'll be harder for me to say no, or at a funeral because nobody, nobody cares any other time about fellowship except those. You know, or their confirmation day. Oh, can my grandma have communion with me? Because, you know, she's a good Christian. Well, that's nice, but that's not what fellowship is all about. You know, so, well. Um, well, let's get back to our, our verse here. So if even we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let them be under God's curse. As we already have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, 
let them be under God's curse. So Paul says, I preached to you, and that was right. If even I should come and preach something else, I'm out. You know, can I, can I make a mistake later and become a heretic? Yeah, I can. So am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. You know, for one thing, Paul is living in a time where it's no fun to please Christ um, because you're constantly being persecuted. Paul, in his first missionary journey, had been stoned to death. I mean, they left him for dead outside the city, uh, the cities of Lystra and Derbe. Um, they, they actually thought that he was dead, and that's why they stopped throwing rocks at him. Um, and now, then that, that night, the people came out and found him and found out that he was still breathing, so he barely survived. And by the way, Lystra and Derby, guess where they are? In the heart of Galatia. These are the people he's writing to, the people that tried to kill him. So key doctrines so far, the resurrection, the atonement, the forgiveness of sins, and then this false doctrine, which is a perverted, twisted gospel that can't save. So also, I wanted you to know, when he says, let them be under God's curse, this is a word that we use in English sometimes. It's called anathema. You may have heard somebody say, they're anathema to me, if somebody's trying to sound clever and everything. But it just means under God's curse, anathema. Okay, um, But it's a pretty strong words, pretty strong words. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So now Paul is going to move into the story of his conversion, um, which happens just really on the road to Damascus, um, very early in the days of the New Testament. Um, I think that Paul's conversion happens just two or three years after Jesus ascends into heaven. So if Jesus' ascension is around the year um, 30 or so, then Paul is converted around the year 32, 33, something like that. Oh, well, it, it seems like it's about two years. Okay. Yeah. He, he kind of starts in Jerusalem and works his way out. So you can almost imagine him like being really creepy about it, like listening at keyholes and talking to people and paying people off. He's like the opposite of Judas Iscariot. You know, Judas is trying to get money for, for betraying Jesus, one guy. Paul is offering money for anyone to betray anybody. You know, he, he's, he's a one-man Sanhedrin. He's, he's just, a, he's, he's, he's nasty. Um, Paul, as a Pharisee, is, is probably the most dangerous individual in all of Scripture when he was still a Pharisee and doing this. And he could almost have wiped out Christianity single-handed from the face of the earth. That's how dangerous he was. The first Christian martyr, Stephen, is stoned to death at Paul's orders and with Paul's approval. That's what it means that the people laid their cloaks at Paul's feet. It means he was the judge and jury, and now they're the executioner. 
For you have heard in my previous way of life in, Ju- in, Ju- in Judaism how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Well, I just, that's what I was just talking about. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So he, he'll, he's, he'll tell us elsewhere that he was a Pharisee and he was a Pharisee of among Pharisees. So uh, Paul was way up at the top of his class and outstripping anybody else in his class for the kinds of stuff that he was doing. But it also tells us I believe that Paul wasn't yet 30. And the reason I say that is because 30 is, is the age where pretty much everybody in Israel at this time started professionally with anything. 30 is the age you were when you could become a priest. 30 is the age you were, Ezekiel 1.1, when, when you can become a prophet. Unless, unless there's an exception like the boy Samuel. Otherwise, it's 30. Um... 30 in the book of Kings and Chronicles is the age that many of the kings were while still under the supervision of dad. Unless there was a death, and sometimes then there would be a mentor around for a while, you know, but kind of 30 was, okay, you're, you're a grown-up now. I disagree. I don't think I'm a grown-up quite yet, but I'm a little bit beyond 30, but, you know, that's, that's what they saw. So, but I think that Paul wasn't yet there. I also, I'm, I'm not sure, and we can talk about this more than once in this book. I'm not sure if Paul was married. And to be a Pharisee, to actually become a teacher, like a rabbi among Pharisees, um, you couldn't become a rabbi um, in almost all circles unless you were married, and certainly not among the Pharisees. Jesus was an exception. But would Paul have been an exception? Probably not. So unless he was converted before he married, then it's possible that Paul was married. And we're going to talk later about the, it's in actually 2 Corinthians, but we'll talk about it, about the thorn in Paul's flesh, some agony that he faced his whole life. Could it have been that his, his Jewish wife deserted him when he became a Christian? That would account for some things that he says occasionally. Maybe it was a physical thing. You know, maybe it, maybe it was a, a disease or something or um, uh, a predilection for malaria or whatever it might happen to have been or bad eyesight or whatever it was. But it could have been this as well. So, but extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I'm not going to go beyond this verse, but I am going to point out in verse 15, Paul suddenly brings up the doctrine of election. To be set apart from my mother's womb, from birth. I've been set apart for this. Um, the doctrine of election I sometimes describe it this way to people. I, when I was younger, I had a different illustration that I think limps. And this one does too, but it's what I'm going to offer. When you imagine your election, imagine God in heaven before creation. And God puts up a bulletin board in heaven. And I, I know, bulletin board in heaven and stuff. But at the top of the bulletin board, 
he has a little piece of paper with your name on it. And he pins that up at the top of the bulletin board. And now, from, from the perspective of you and your relationship to God, now everything, all kinds of newspaper articles get posted up on that board because everything in history, God brings about so that you will be his. That's the doctrine of election. God choosing you in eternity to belong to him and then bringing things about so that that would take place. That's the doctrine of election. It's all about you and your relationship with God. Election isn't about anybody else. It's not a like there's another it's not a doctrine with another side. Like what about this person or that person? Election whenever it's described in scripture is always about the individual and God. So we when we teach it, we should teach it without any other sides. It's just about the individual and God. That's election. Most doctrines are about everybody. The election isn't. It's just about you and your Savior. I think we'll stop there. Yeah. Next week we'll get into more history and, uh, and, uh, and we'll go from there. God bless you. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.